Priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and brought with, or bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been sent by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Again, our text this morning is the verses 1 through 10. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday in the afternoon service, we have Dr. Venom in the morning, but in the afternoon we'll do the verses 11 through 14. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we begin now uh, in this week our Lenten series. This is the beginning of the Lenten season, and, and we do want to be cautious, of course. There is a, a, a way to uh, celebrate Lent that is inappropriate, that is not consistent with our faith. We certainly don't want to do that. We don't want to suggest that, that during these next number of weeks in anticipation of Good Friday and Easter Sunday that, that these weeks are somehow more holy or that if you do better things, if you give something up for the next series of weeks, that God is pleased by that or impressed by that in some way. Every day belongs to the Lord. Every week is to be lived in service to God. You, you can't uh, live a wicked life on Tuesday and then think that you can be received before the Lord on Wednesday. You can't go to Mardi Gras and Ash Wednesday and think that that's okay. We don't want any of that mentality to be among us. But we do want to take time as we come to Good Friday and Easter Sunday to just reflect on what it is that Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross, to be reminded again of the preciousness of His sacrifice and the wonder of His love as it's poured out on the cross. And we're going to do that by going through most of chapter 27 of Matthew's gospel. We uh, have studied already in the past from verse 57 onward, but we'll finish chapter 27 in these next couple of weeks, and that will end then our study also of the book of Matthew. And as we come to see the glory of what Jesus accomplished on, on Easter Sunday and on Good Friday, we're going to do so against the backdrop of some very, some very dark things. That starts already in this chapter. We have the council of the uh, Sanhedrin against Jesus, the, the uh, hanging, the suicide of Judas Iscariot, and then the casting away of that money and the spending of that money on the potter's field. 
All of which is very, uh, as we'll see, a very dark thing, a very dark thing indeed. Uh, that there is revealed here on the pages of Scripture some, some, the depths of our depravity as human beings, which is often very uncomfortable for us to have, to have to study and deal with. We certainly prefer Easter, you might say, Easter Sunday and the joyous celebration of Jesus Christ's resurrection to the events of Good Friday and the darkness that descends on the land on that day as Jesus hangs upon the cross. And in general, we want to be we want to be told wonderful things, glorious things, encouraging things, and we don't want to hear about how bad things are. But we ought to recognize that against the, the darkness of the night sky, the stars shine all that much brighter. That against the, the felt background of the jeweler's cloth, the diamond shines that much brighter. That sometimes we need to see the darkness so that we can see just how brilliant is the light. And that's what we want to see together this uh, morning as we consider these opening verses, the verses 1 through 10 of Matthew 27. Keeping in mind what's just happened, we want to just remind ourselves uh, how Jesus in chapter 26 is uh, uh, arrested. Uh, He uh, is arrested, of course, as you know, by Judah or with the help of Judas Iscariot. Uh, And then how Peter denies him three times, of course, we remember that awful moment but then also how he's before Caiaphas and the council, and this is all happening at night, and they bring these false witnesses, and they do these terrible things, this, this unjust, cruel treatment, this conspiring of these men. We sang from Psalm 2 this morning, these men who think they can throw off the bonds of God and can say, we'll do whatever we want, thank you very much. And of course, God in heaven laughs, for he establishes his son upon his throne But keep in mind then this background, this immediate context for our text, this betrayal, the arrest, the trial, even as we ought to remember the more broad context that Matthew's gospel has presented to us, namely that the ministry of Jesus Christ, which began really with John the Baptist, has elicited a strong response from people, and particularly from pious people, from the leaders of the Jews, from the church leaders, the the ones you expect to be the holiest, the ones who know the word most powerfully, who you think would be the most situated to answer the call of the gospel, that when they heard John the Baptist proclaiming the coming Messiah, they would have rejoiced. They would have been the, the ones leading the parade to the Jordan River. But you'll remember that when they came, they came to the Jordan River not to hear John's preaching, but instead to examine it. They they sent investigators down to which then John says, who warned you of the wrath to come bear fruit in keeping with repentance for the axe is laid to the tree. He warned them that they were in danger of destruction. And progressively, as the ministry of Jesus carries on, as he preaches the good news, as he performs the miracles that he does, these men grow increasingly angry with him. They grow increasingly hardened to his message. And they reject Jesus Christ utterly and totally in the end. Indeed, that's something of what we see in our text. For the Sanhedrin, though it has met at night and has agreed to have Jesus killed, faces it a significant challenge. And, and they, are to, they meet that challenge in the, in the context or in, in, in the words of our text. The challenge is this, they couldn't kill a man, or they, well, they couldn't kill a man, or at least they couldn't kill a man with authority. They could kill a man. They, they, they had a tendency to do that, actually. 
Indeed, the Jews, you'll remember, will kill Stephen, uh, uh, the first martyr of the church. They had no problem killing people. Uh, but in this context, uh, the leaders of the Jews have a problem. They, they are afraid of the crowds, and they're not sure that the crowds are going to be on side uh, with their scheme against Jesus. You'll remember that's why they didn't want Jesus killed during the festival, because they were afraid of what the crowds might do. And so they're going to get Pilate involved. They're going to get Pilate to kill Jesus. And, and in so doing, will obviously then also shame Jesus, will expose Jesus as a charlatan, will be able to say to the crowds, this is your Messiah, this one that Rome has so powerfully and so awfully killed, stripped him naked, hung him from the tree, this is your Messiah, look at him and see how miserable he is. The leaders of the Jews need to get Pilate involved in order to accomplish their despicable deeds. And they also need to take counsel together in the morning. You couldn't uh, issue a death certificate at, or a, a, a call to, to, to kill a man at night. They had to do it in the light of day. And that, the idea there was that there, there would be a, a sober second thought. There would be a reflection on what they'd just done. Things done at night can sometimes be done hastily, done foolishly, under the cover of darkness. We don't want to do things under the cover of darkness. We want to wait and do things in the open. We, everybody now comes to the Sanhedrin. All of the men are gathered. Now maybe somebody will say, why are we killing this innocent man? Maybe somebody will say, why are we rejecting the one who has spoken the words of peace? But of course nobody does. They take counsel, we're told, together against Jesus to put him to death and they bind him and lead him away and deliver him over to Pilate to the governor and in those simple words though they are just technically descriptions of what happened there is such a depth of depravity displayed that it staggers the mind to imagine that these men with good conscience could do what they did in this moment, could advance this, this conspiracy against Jesus, ought to stun us. These godly men, these leaders of the church, here with the appearance of piety, dotting their I's and crossing their T's, making sure that all the paperwork is done, that it's all very official and bureaucratic and technical. It's, it's all very right because the paperwork says it's right. But it's also so very profoundly wicked, so wicked, this innocent man being led to his death, not because of anything he had done, but because he offended the hearts of these men who wanted to hang on to their power, for whom Jesus was an inconvenience. He was threatening their position. He was threatening their power. And so they used their power to dismiss him. Indeed, isn't this what's so very wrong with so much of our society and with so much in our own hearts? As parents, as office bearers in the church, as teachers, as police officers, as, as politicians, we can find ourselves holding on to the levers of power and say to ourselves, well, I'll show you. You think you can disrespect me? I'll show you. We use our positions to rid ourselves of the uncomfortable, we abuse those under us simply because we can. We ought to see in these opening verses the very cruelty that dwells in the heart of men. 
And ask yourself, what would justify this? What would justify their doing this to Jesus? What could any of these men say to God the Father on the day that they would stand before Him in judgment? What could they use to explain their wicked counsel? Was it Jesus' message of repent and believe, of forgiveness and grace with Jesus Christ, or grace with the God who has sent His Son to save them? Was it with Jesus' ministry, with His gracious, tender ministry to the weak and the failing, to the lost and the lonely of Israel? What could you possibly say against Jesus that would justify signing the order of, of death and leading Him off to Pilate to be killed? There is no explanation. Because there never is. There is never an explanation for sinfulness. Does your sinfulness ever have an explanation? Sometimes our moms ask us that, don't they? We do something silly, we do something wrong, and mom says, what were you thinking? And we don't have an answer. Because there is no answer. Well, there is an answer, I suppose. The answer is, I wanted to do whatever I wanted to. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to see if it would work. But we realize as soon as we're going to say these things that they sound silly that they really aren't reasonable, that they are just an excuse. Our sinfulness does not have a reasonable explanation. It has an excuse. It has a justification. But it never makes sense because sin, you understand, is always irrational. It always rages against God. It always defies reality. It always insists that my truth is truth and no one else's. Why couldn't these men see what they were doing? Why couldn't these men understand where they were going? What could they possibly say? What does our world say? What do any of us say when it comes to sin? Look around and see how desperately so many in our culture today are trying to erase every vestige of God's glory and name within our society. Hear how many blame all the problems of life at the feet of the faith who say it's these bigots, these narrow-minded Christians, it's these people who are so oppressive, who are so cruel to the the weak and the failing. The problem is the church, you understand. The society will be a better place when the church is gone. And yet they cannot see that they are bringing their own destruction upon their heads, that the rejection of God is destroying the very thing that they claim to be protecting. But think not so far afield. We don't even have to go to our world, to our newspapers, to our radios, to hear how our, our hearts are so wicked. We, we know that as a community, as a congregation of faith, we have family, we have friends who leave the faith who refuse to rest in the work of Jesus Christ, who don't answer the call of their baptism, and instead leave this life of living with God for the empty spirituality of a foolish world that has no meaning. They're like those who want to go bungee cord jumping, but say, don't don't limit me by wrapping those bungee cords around my ankles. I don't want to be limited when I experience freedom. I want to be able to fly and they jump without any restraints. And it may be exhilarating for a time, but eventually it will hurt. When you shake your fist at God, His fist crushes you. Why 
do people leave the faith? Why do people reject Jesus Christ? Why do some of us, maybe even sitting here today, think that denying Jesus, that not giving our life to the Lord is at all good? It will at all bless us. Even as we experience the consequences of our foolish actions and we find ourselves in bad situations and we we think, well, this is unfair. Why is this happening to me? Even as we reject the very God who calls us to repentance and faith. But we don't even have to look at those people, do we? We don't have to look at others. We don't have to look at brothers and sisters in the faith who have denied Jesus Christ. We don't want to look down our own noses at the world or at others who have left the faith. Really, we only need to go to the mirror in our bathrooms and look into that mirror and say, why do you, why do I do the things I do? Why do I so often live contrary to God's will? Why do I make such foolish choices, do such wicked things, rejecting the King of kings, refusing His word and will, knowing full well what that command is, knowing what His word, what His Ten Commandments require of me. Why don't I love God the way I ought? Why don't I love my neighbor the way I ought? Do I have a reason for it? Can I explain it? And sadly, I cannot. Because there is no self-righteousness in the church. There cannot be There is just a mirror, the mirror of God's word and will that shows us who we are by nature and says, shudder at the thought that this is who you are. See in this passage, not men that you can condemn, but yourself and the darkness of your own heart. See yourself in these verses that open our text. As Jesus is condemned and led away. What could justify such a thing? Indeed, what would justify our doing such a thing? If by nature we are willing to kill the King of glory, the greatest preacher, the kindest shepherd, the best of men, then what hope is there for us? Think of that for a moment. What hope is there for us? If this is who we are by nature, if this is an accurate description of our own hearts, then what hope has this world? Will education, public education, solve the problem of man's wickedness? Will a guaranteed minimum income solve the problem of man's wickedness? Will the end of religion, as John Lennon sang, solve the problem of man's wickedness? Can you reach into the depths of someone else? Could you reach into the depths of your own heart and free yourself from the darkness of your sin? Can you beat your addictions? Can you stop your sinning? Can you solve your impatience? Can you resolve your quick temper? Can you... Make yourself good. Can you explain to other people just how great God is more brilliantly than Jesus ever did? Can you love your neighbor more deeply than Jesus ever did? Can you you show that wayward child the better way, the more excellent way, more fully than Jesus ever did? Can you save yourself? Can you save anyone? Too quickly we think we can. And that's why we need to come into the darkness of this passage and look into the pit of despair and say, I see myself here. For here is the greatest grief that by nature we are unwilling and unable to see the most obvious truth of all and to bow at the feet of the Messiah, choosing instead to curse Him, which cursing leads only to grief. For Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned and changed his mind.
and so brought back the 30 pieces of silver, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they say, what's that to us? And he threw down the 30 pieces of silver in the temple, departed and went and hanged himself. We are reintroduced here to this servant, this one of the twelve, this hand-picked follower of Jesus who was the treasurer of the twelve, who was a thief, by the way. He had his hand in that purse and he was the betrayer. Now, if there was ever anybody who ought to spontaneously repent, who ought to just by seeing reality, by hearing what happened, should have had an absolute change of heart. Surely it was Jesus, or Judas. Judas, you remember, not only betrayed Jesus, but he had also lived with Jesus for those three years of his public ministry. He had seen Jesus up close and personal. He had heard the good news of the gospel. He had heard the promises of salvation. He had heard the word of grace. He experienced the mercy of the Savior countless times, intimately and personally. If there was anybody who could ever say, I know that this Messiah will forgive. I will flee to Him to find help. Surely it would be one of these men, one of these twelve. That is, of course, what made Judas' betrayal so terrible. He betrayed a close friend, a, a beloved brother. He betrayed the one he saw, the one he could know to be the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But he chose instead to prefer money to the Messiah, to prefer self to the Savior, to pursue his own freedom. He did what so many of us, what we all by nature want to do, what we all instinctively do, which is to say to this gospel message, I don't think so. Not for me, thank you. Not for me. But now we read that he changes his mind. So maybe there is hope for him. That is, maybe his guilt, maybe his shame, maybe seeing how wicked the leaders of the Jews are, maybe he's gotten scared straight and he wants to be made right. And there are those who will argue that. There are those that will suggest that Judas here actually repents. And they will point to the fact that the language says that he changed his mind. Language that is often used to describe repentance. Although the word that is more often used to describe repentance in that way, the changing of a mind, is a different word than Matthew here uses. Matthew's using not the word that's usually used for repentance, which is at least somewhat significant. And while it is true that there is something of a realization of guilt here, of a deep and profound guilt, he does, after all, go back to the Sanhedrin. He returns the blood money and he despairs of what he's done. There is, to some degree, an appreciation of, in Judas's heart for the great wickedness he's accomplished. Yet there is no hope in this man. There is no hope that Jesus will forgive him, no crying out for mercy. Despair drives him to a tree, but it's not to the cross of Calvary. It drives him to death, but not to the death of death. He doesn't plead at the foot of the cross. He dies at the foot of a tree, having hung himself. Because Judas still doesn't know who Jesus is. Judas doesn't really see Jesus for who he is. Judas despairs and so dies. 
He realizes he has offended God by acting despicably. And in that realization has no hope of forgiveness. And the guilt sends him to despair. And there is in this, people of God, there there needs to be in this, for all of us, an appreciation of the truth of our human experience. That is, we may not find ourselves exactly in Judas's feet, in, in Judas's shoes, you might say, on his path, but we, do, we know something of the pattern that led him to this moment, don't we? Do we not know things about guilt? Do we not know things about despair? Are these not acknowledged realities also in our life? Are these not burdens we also carry? Are there not moments we may lay in bed and remember what we did maybe 20, 30, 50 years ago and we shudder at the thought, how could I be so foolish? And the devil whispers in our ears that that we are not worthy. And we despair. We, We are so discouraged. We may even enter into the darkness of depression and anxiety. Do we not know something of this? Do we not experience this guilt and this shame? If we do not, we will eventually, even if we now are chasing after wickedness, if we are filling our cup with rebellion against God, we will discover that it is a bitter, bitter cup to drink. And then we will despair, won't we? We will despair so often. Isn't that what happens? And we will seek solutions, of course we will, because we will want this pain, this this grief, this burden in our hearts. We will want it to be mended. We will want it to be blessed. We want to be removed, lifted. We, we cry out to the psychotherapists of our world. Excluding, of course, Christian counseling that, of course, we exclude from this. But we'll go to the world and its psychotherapies and its Freudian and, and all the rest who tell us, oh, no, no, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. No, it was your parents. It was culture. It was society. It's not your fault. And we'll try in that moment to lift the guilt from our hearts to discover it is intractable. It cannot be lifted. We will try with alcohol. We will try with drugs. So many do. So many do. We'll try to numb the pain. We'll try to cover it with with a mind no longer grasping at reality because reality is too hard to embrace. Or we'll... We'll seek some vain philosophy. Tolerance. The tolerance of our world. Not real. There's a good tolerance. But the tolerance of our age. Which says if the world, if you weren't so judgmental, if you weren't so oppressive to me, I'd be happy. I I need a world that is completely punished for ever treating me badly. And we can even, oh yes, we can even try and find the answer inappropriately within the church. We can come to church and we can try to do good works and we can try to salve our our guilt by by crawling up the steps of the church on our knees like Luther did so long ago. We can try to work off our guilt and our shame. We will try and find ways to solve the problem of our despair, but we will never solve it in ourselves. The problem is, our guilt is too great. And in ourselves, there is no hope 
There is no way of handling it, no solution to it. That is what makes both the gospel such good news and so very offensive. That's why these leaders of the Jews rejected it, why Judas rejected it. Because the gospel comes and says, there is nothing in you that is good. There is only in Him what is good. So that to embrace this Messiah, you must relinquish yourself in your entirety. And we struggle with that. We struggle with that. When God confronted man in the garden, man didn't cry out for mercy. He blamed his wife. Indeed, when confronted with sin today, blind men deny the reality of it, blaming those who speak of such things. Our world does foolishly. They're like, they're like a patient who goes to a doctor and receives a diagnosis of terminal illness and instead of saying, doctor, what can I do? Takes out his gun and shoots the doctor. And says, well, it can't be true anymore because the doctor's dead. I can't be dying. Now we have not only continued to live in death, we have killed the one who could help us. That is the society we live in. That is the world in which we live. That is the way the gospel is treated today. Someone once said that in a world of blind men, the one-eyed man would be king. Makes sense, right? The person who he can only see with one eye, at least he can see. And people will listen to him. People will do what he says because at least he can see. But Marshall McLuhan, the Canadian philosopher, was much more insightful, I think, when he said that in a world of blind men, the one-eyed man will be considered a hallucinating idiot. Because we will say there's something wrong with that guy. He sees things that don't exist. He's wrong. Listen to what he says. How can any of that be true? That man is crazy. Don't listen to him. And so it is with the gospel, isn't it? So it is with the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. So it is to our world. And so often even to us. We live in sin. We pursue the ways of sin. And then we seek to wash off our own guilt. We seek to erase the pain of our own choices by our own foolish decisions instead of crying out for mercy to the only one who can save us. Indeed, what a desperately foolish creature we are who, like Judas so long ago, solve not our problem, but only make it worse. Despite, despite the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. See, there is hope in this passage. It's, it's not immediately evident, I suppose, but there is hope in this passage. There is hope already in the verses 1 and 2 because Jesus already in chapter 20 had acknowledged or had prophesied to his disciples that he was going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He knew that the Jews weren't going to kill him, that it was going to be Rome. And so he already prophesied the, 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 what is fulfilled in the opening verses of our text. And even at the end of this text, we have the fulfillment of another set of prophecies. In verse 7 we read, so, or in verse 6 rather, but the chief priests take the pieces, took the pieces of silver and said it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. Now just let the piety of that grab you for a minute. 
These are the men that gave the blood money. They gave the money to betray Jesus, and now they won't touch it. I mean, the foolishness of men is beyond belief. And they say, or so they took the, the counsel and brought with them the, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers, and therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price on, him whom, they, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. This money that Judas has thrown back into the temple needs to be dealt with. And the Sanhedrin once again takes counsel. It's the same word as in the opening verse of our text. They can't put that money in the offering plate. It's blood money. It was tainted. They at least knew that. When they gave it, it was good and right. When they received it back, it was untouchable. So they use it to buy a field in which to bury non-Jews. You can't bury Jews with that money, but you can bury Gentiles with that money. So they buy a field for strangers. And we might shake our heads at this and wonder, what's going on here? Here again, the darkness of men is revealed. The piety of men. For these men are suddenly pious. These men are suddenly holy. They're suddenly worried about what's right and wrong. They've just condemned an innocent man to death. That doesn't bother them in the least, but this 30 pieces of silver is suddenly an issue. We might again wonder at the darkness of men's hearts. But we ought to be impressed by this at least, that God knew long before this happened that it would. For Matthew ties this to a prophecy from Jeremiah, which is actually more of a prophecy from Zechariah, but it's also from Jeremiah. And sometimes when you have, in, uh, when the New Testament writers had prophecies that were from more than one um, prophet, uh, they would combine them under the name of one prophet, usually the more major prophet. In this case, that would be Jeremiah. Mark does the same thing when he quotes two chapters or two pieces from Isaiah and Malachi, but just says they're under Isaiah. That's what happens here. Matthew says there's that prophecy of Jeremiah which is actually more found in Zechariah. It's also found in Jeremiah, but it's more in Zechariah. And he says this fulfilled that prophecy. A prophecy that spoke of exactly what happened in our text. It's a prophecy about sheep and about shepherds and about terrible shepherds that do not pasture the, the flocks the way they ought, who abuse the flocks. And so in comes this, this good shepherd, the shepherd who will do the right thing, who will care for the sheep, and, and who in the end is rejected by the people. And when he says, well, you have to pay me for the I've worked, so you've got to pay me. They say, well, fine, here's 30 pieces of silver, which was a miserable amount, which was a very low, they were disregard, they were dismissing, we don't care about you, get rid of you. They were underpaying him because they didn't value him at all. And with that money then is bought this field. And that prophecy then speaks, it does it not, of the very thing that happened in this text. That is, it, it speaks of Jesus. It speaks of Jesus' rejection. He speaks of his rejection at the price of 30 pieces of silver. Which 30 pieces of silver are used to buy a field? And it's a prophecy about God's grace. A prophecy about his saving work. It was a prophecy about how the Lord would restore to himself his people. That they would suffer under his judgment, but that that suffering would lead to restoration. He, Matthew at the very end says, hey, 
Hey, don't, don't, don't despair at this. Don't despair at this yet. Oh, yes, there's a lot of darkness here. There's the darkness of the leaders of the Jews. There's the darkness of Judas's heart. There's darkness in your heart and in my heart. There's darkness here. But let's not be overwhelmed. Let's not despair. Because God has known the truth of your darkness long before you did. God knew how wicked men's hearts were long before we were ever able to acknowledge it. God knows how impossible, how hopeless our condition is in ourselves. And that's precisely why He sent His Son as our Savior. Jesus comes not because we need a bit of a polishing up, because we need a nudge in the right direction, because we need a bit of good advice. He comes because we are in a pit of despair, because we are in the miry bog, because we are lost and alone, and He alone can redeem you. He knows the great wickedness of your heart. He knows the cruelty and condemnation. He knows the guilt and shame that lives within you. He knows it, and He sent His Son for it to save you from it, to lift you out of it, to wash you clean in His blood. He knows the darkness of your life and He has still loved you with a perfect love in Jesus Christ. That's the point here of this awful text, of this despicable description of man's wickedness as they reject the Messiah, as He proceeds to the cross, as He fulfills the work given Him by His Father, prophesied long before, so that His people might be saved. It is against that darkness that we need to admit the glory of the light. It is against that darkness that it shines most brightly. We struggle at times with having to deal with the darkness. We struggle at times with our own sin, with admitting our own sin, with admitting the hopelessness and helplessness of our character apart from God and Jesus Christ. But don't. Admit it. Own it. Acknowledge it. Because Jesus came for it. You can't claim Jesus. You can't lay hold of Him and say, but I don't really need Him. Ah, it's nice for him to come. But I, didn't, I, could have, I could have done it on my own. Oh no, you must say. We all must say. This is a picture of me. Here is where I would end up. I would be like Judas in utter despair. I too would bring judgment upon my own head. I would make foolish decisions. I would reject. I do reject Jesus far too often, far too regularly. But where the de- devil comes to, cause, to create despair in my heart, the gospel comes to instill hope. The water of baptism comes to say, I know, oh, I know. For God says to us in our baptism, I know the truth of who you are. I know the darkness of your sin. I know the guilt with which you're burdened. That's why I sent my Son to save you, to lift you, to bless you. That's what this Lenten season is about. That's what we want to see as we progress through chapter 27 of Matthew's Gospel. We want to see the darkness of our own human condition so that we can marvel at the glorious light of His grace. Let's ask Him for help in that 
in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you.